0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear A Dream of Men by Mary Gateskill, which was published in The New Yorker in November of 1998.
1: She put her foot up on the table and drank her coffee out of a striped mug the size of a little bowl. She had to be at her job at the medical clinic in half an hour. She wasn't late, but still, her body was racing inside.
0: The story was chosen by Ben Marcus, who's the author of two novels and two story collections, most recently Leaving the Sea, which was shortlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. Hi, Ben. Hi, Deborah. So, how did you first start reading Mary Gatesgill?
1: I probably read her stories in college, Bad Behavior, and... uh, she really seemed to come out of nowhere. It was transgressive fiction, but not in the way maybe I was accustomed to with a lot of kind of formal pyrotechnics. It felt really emotionally transgressive, sad, disturbing, strange, very believable. I like the discomfort of the stories, but then they could suddenly veer into beauty. She seems to have a lot of registers. It's hard to
0: mm-hmm. pin her down what else would you have been reading at the time? I mean, anything in that? Probably a
1: whole lot of Donald Barthelme. Uh So it was very different. Yeah. But I think I was reading Richard Ford and Ann Beattie and Jane Ann Phillips. There was an anthology called 20 Under 30 edited by someone named Deborah Spark. Mm -hmm. A lot of good stories Mm -hmm. in it. I don't know why that popped into my head.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then this particular story came out in 98 and it It's one of a handful of stories that that Mary published in the magazine. What made this one, A Dream of Men, stand out for you?
1: It's a mysterious story. There's a lot that's left out. It has some of her signature maneuvers. It has a kind of bluntness. It's very direct. It generates discomfort. There's a kind of sorrow hanging over the story that isn't ever really named Very little happens in the story, but a lot of feeling is churned up. And so when I was trying to decide what to read for this, it just seemed really powerful and also really mysterious. I still couldn't really figure out what I thought of it or couldn't decide how it was doing what it was doing to me. And I Mm -hmm. like that.
0: Do you think you have a more of a grip on it now?
1: Yeah, I totally understand it now. (laughs) I blueprinted it. I fed it into the machine, and now I've demystified it. Finally, no, actually, I've probably read it uh, six or seven times now, and I I love that it 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 refuses to yield in a certain way, but I still feel drawn back to it.
0: Do you think what kind of place do you think discomfort has in short stories?
1: I value that feeling of being a little unsettled and a little unsure when it has, a, I, th- I think, a kind of rich sort of depth to it. There are probably lots of shallow, simple ways to create discomfort. <clears throat> and I guess it, it feels like a, it's, it's a mood or maybe in, in the way that music creates a mood that feels substantial. It feels as if there's a maybe deeper reckoning with things that matter. And um, I think to... With Mary Gateskill, she's not doing it for its own sake. It doesn't seem that she's out to kind of play any tricks. There seems to be a really high degree of realism with what she's showing about her characters. And, of course, there's a lot of discomfort in the air and in oneself.
0: And in life, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So there seems to be a real emotional realism that she can achieve with it.
0: Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Ben Marcus reading A Dream of Men by Mary Gateskill.
1: A DREAM OF MEN Laura was walking around her apartment in a cotton nightgown with green and yellow flowers on it, muttering, UGLY CUNT! UGLY CUNT! It was a bad habit that had got worse in recent months. She caught herself muttering while she was preparing her morning coffee and made herself stop. But it's true, she thought. Women are ugly. She immediately thought of her sister, Anna Lee, making herself a chicken salad sandwich to have with a glass of milk. Anna Lee was not beautiful, but she wasn't ugly either. She thought of her mother, frowning slightly as she sat at her kitchen table, drawing a picture of fruit in a dish. Her mother had a small, dear bald spot on the top of her head. If anyone said ugly cunt to her sister or her mother, Laura would hit him. She would hit anyone who said it to her friend, Danielle. Well, she didn't really mean it when she said it, at least not in the normal way. She put her foot up on the table and drank her coffee out of a striped mug the size of a little bowl. She had to be at her job at the medical clinic in half an hour. She wasn't late, but still her body was racing inside. Even though she'd been at the clinic for five years, every morning her body acted as if getting out the door and into the world were an emergency. This was even more true since her father died. The death had turned her inside herself. Even when she was in public, talking to people or driving through traffic or carrying forms and charts and samples in the halls of the clinic, she dimly sensed the greater part of herself turned inside, like a bug tunneling in the earth with its tiny, sensate legs. All through the earth was the dull roar of unknown life forms. She could not see it or hear it as she might see and hear with her human eyes and ears, but she could feel it with her fragile insect legs. She finished her coffee and got out the door. Houston in the summer was terribly hot and humid. The heat made her feel grossly physical. She gave a tiny grunt to express the feeling. It was the kind of grunt her cat made when it lay down and settled in deep. She opened her car. There were cassettes and mixed trash on the floor in the passenger seat, and she thought there was a sour smell coming from somewhere. She let the air conditioner run with the door open, sitting straight up in the seat with her legs parted wide under the tented skirt of her uniform. Across the street there was a 24-hour flower market in an open shack. Dimly, she could see the proprietor inside, wiping his brow with a rag. He looked like he was settled deep into something, too. Last night, she had dreamed of two men in a vicious fight. At first, they had been playing basketball. One of them seemed the apparent winner. He was tall, handsome, and well-developed, while his opponent was short and flabby. Watching the game, Laura felt sorry for the little one. Then the game became a fight. The men rolled on the ground, beating each other. The little flabby one proved unexpectedly powerful, and soon he had the tall, handsome man pinned on the ground. As Laura watched, he pulled out a serrated knife and began to cut off the top of the handsome man's skull. The handsome man screamed and struggled. Laura ran to them and took the knife away from the small man. He pulled out another knife and tried to stab her. She cut him open from his neck to his crotch. He remained standing. A fall fell from his opened body. She lit a cigarette and closed the car door. Her father had been a small man. When he was younger, he'd struck boxing poses in front of the mirror, jabbing at his reflection. I could have been a bantamweight, he'd said. I still have the speed. Laura lived in a rundown neighborhood that was usually slow, but today there was heavy traffic. She talked to herself as she negotiated the lanes, speeding and slowing in a lulling rhythm. When she talked to herself, she often argued with an imaginary person. This time, she argued about the news story concerning the president's affair with a 22-year-old intern. Personally, I don't care, she said. It shouldn't really matter what they're like sexually. Stopped at the red light, she glanced at the people waiting for a bus. They looked tenacious and stoic as a band of ragged cats staring alertly down the street or pulled tidily into themselves with crossed legs, holding their handbags. It's hard to tell what really went on between the two of them anyway, she continued. Sometimes things that look awful on the outside look different when you get up close. Her father had started dying in a hospital in Tucson. By the time Laura had got there, her mother and her sister were fighting with the doctors about his treatment. He was too weak to eat, so they'd stuffed tubes down his nose to feed him something called Vita Plus. His body doesn't want it. Anna Lee was talking to the nurse. It's making him sicker. It was true. As soon as Laura looked at her father, she knew he was going to die. His body was shrunken and dried, already half-abandoned. His spirit stared from his eyes as if stunned. I know, said the nurse. I agree with you, but we have to give it to him. It's policy. Hi, Daddy said Laura. When he answered her, his voice was like an old broken sack holding something live. He was about to lose the live thing, but right now he held it, amazed by it, as if he had never known it before. He said, Good to see you. Didn't know if you'd come. She stopped at a crosswalk. There was a squirrel crossing the street in short, halting runs. She stopped traffic for a minute, waiting for it. A woman sitting on a public bench smiled at her. The woman sat with her knees tensely open and her feet poised on their balls. In her pointy shoes, her feet were like little hooves. It made sense that she was on the squirrel's side. They brought their father home to be cared for by hospice workers. By that time, he was emaciated and filled with mucus that he could not discharge through his throat or nose. It ran out of his nostrils sometimes, but mostly they heard it rattling in his lungs. He couldn't eat anything and he didn't talk much. They put him in the guest bedroom in a big, soft bed with a dust ruffle. The sun shining in the window made his skin so transparent that the veins and spots on his face became more present than the skin. He blinked at the sun like a turtle. They took turns sitting with him. Laura stroked his arm with her fingertips, barely grazing his fragile skin. When she did that, he said, Thank you, Laura, honey. He had never called her honey before. He was so weak he couldn't turn himself, so two hospice workers had to turn him. When they did, he got angry. His skin had gone so thin that his bones felt sharp and it hurt him to be moved. No, leave me alone, he'd say. I don't care. I don't care. He would frown and even slap at the workers, and in the fierce knit of his brow and his blank, furious eye, Laura remembered him as he had been twenty-five years ago. He'd been standing in the dining room, and she'd walked by him wearing flowered pants that were tight in the seat and the crotch. He'd said, What are you doing walking around with your pudenda hanging out like that? Nobody wants to see that. She arrived at the clinic early and got a good place in the parking garage. On the way up to the 17th floor, she shared the elevator with Dr. Edwina Ramirez, whom she liked. They had once had a conversation in the break lounge, during which they both revealed that they didn't want to have children. Dr. Ramirez had looked at Laura suddenly, a deep, bright spot inside her eye. "'People act like there's something wrong with you,' she said. "'Don't they know about overpopulation? "'I mean, yeah, there's biology and shit, but there's other ways to be a loving person.' She'd quickly bent to take her candy bar out of the machine. "'You know what I mean?' Ever since then, Laura had felt good around Dr. Ramirez. Every time she saw her, she thought, Ways to be a loving person. She thought it as they rode up in the elevator together, even though the doctor stood silently frowning and smoothing her skirt. When they got to their floor, Dr. Ramirez said, See you, and gave Laura a half-smile as they strode in opposite directions. Laura went to the lounge to get a coffee. Some other technicians and a few nurses were sitting at the table eating donuts from a box. Newspapers with broad, grainy pictures of the White House intern lay spread out on the table. In one of the pictures, the girl posed with members of her high school class at the prom. She stood very erect in a low-cut dress, staring with focused dreaminess at a spot just past the camera. She's a porker, said a tech support. Just look at her. Beautiful hair, though, said a phlebotomist. Laura lingered at the little refrigerator, trying to find the carton of whole milk. Everybody else used 2%. It makes me sympathize with him, said a nurse. He could have anybody he wanted, and he picks these kinds of girls. Like, they're not models. They're not stars. That makes you sympathize? I think that's what's gross about it. But it might not be. It might be because he wants somebody to be normal with. Like somebody who's totally on his side who he can, like, talk about baseball with somebody who's pretty in a normal way. What? Are you nuts? She was a fat girl sucking his dick. Laura settled for edible oil creamers. She took a handful along with a pocketful of sugars and a striped stir stick. The day they brought their father home, the plumbing in the bathroom backed up. Sewage came out of the bathtub drain. Water seeped into the chenille tapestry their mother had put up around the window. The sight of it made Laura's heart pound. During the eight days that Laura stayed there, she slept in the bedroom of her girlhood, sharing the bed with Anna Lee. She and Anna Lee had slept close together in the same bed until Laura was fifteen and Anna Lee thirteen. Even when they got separate beds, they sometimes crept in together and cuddled. Now they lay separate even in grief. They talked, though. The night before their father died, they talked until four in the morning. Anna Lee talked about her six-year-old, Peter, an anxious, overweight child with a genius IQ. The kid couldn't make friends. He fought all the time and was often beaten. He'd set his room on fire twice. She was talking about a psychiatrist she had taken him to see. In the light from the window, Laura could see her sister's eyelashes raising and lowering with each hard, dry blink. She could smell the lotion Anna Lee used on her face and neck. The psychiatrist had put Peter on a waiting list to go to a special school in Montana, a farm school with llamas the children could care for and ride on. After Annalise stopped talking, there was a long silence. Laura could feel her sister's body become fractionally softer and more open, relaxing and concentrating at the same time. Maybe she was thinking of Peter, how he might get better, how he might grow happy and strong. Laura had met the child. He'd frowned at her and looked down at the broken toy in his hand, but there was curiosity in his mane, and he was quick to look up again. He was already fat and already bright. He seemed too sad and too angry for such a young child. "'I had a strange thought about Daddy,' she said. Anna Lee didn't answer, but Laura could feel her become alert. In the scant window light, Laura could sense that the muscles around Anna Lee's eyes had tightened she knew she should stop but she didn't it was more a picture in my head she continued it was a picture of a vagina that somebody was slashing with a knife daddy wasn't in the picture but oh christ laura annalee put her hands over her face and turned away just stop why don't you just stop but i didn't mean it to be he's not your enemy now said annalee he's dying Her voice was raw and hard. She thrust it at Laura like a stick. Laura pictured her sister at 12, yelling at some mean boys who'd cornered a cat. She felt loyalty and love. I'm sorry, she said. Her mouth frowned, a weak, spasmodic grimace in the dark. I'm sorry. Anna Lee reached back and patted Laura's stomach with her fingers and half her palm. Then she withdrew into her private curl. Laura lay awake through the night. Anna Lee moved and scratched herself and spoke in urgent, slurred monosyllables. Laura thought of their mother, alone upstairs in the heavy sleep brought on by barbiturates. Tomorrow she would be at the stove, boiling water for jello in case her husband would eat it. She didn't really believe he was dying. She knew it, but she didn't believe it. Carefully, Laura got out of bed. She walked through the dark house until she came to her father's room. She heard him breathing before her eyes adjusted to the light. His breath was like a worn moth feebly beating against a surface. She sat in the armchair beside his bed. The electric clock said it was 5.30. A passing car on the street filled the room with a yawning sweep of light. The wallpaper was yellow flowers. Great-aunt's old dead clock sat on the dresser. Great-aunt was her father's aunt who had raised him with her sister two widowed aunts and a little boy with no father. Laura could see the boy standing in the parlor, all his new life coursing through his small stout legs and trunk. In his head was a new solar system, crackling with light as he created the planets, the novas, the sun and the moon and the stars. Look, he cried, look. The dutiful aunts, busy with housekeeping and food, didn't see. The more he tried to show, the more they wouldn't see. The boy hesitated, and with his uncertainty, his system began to break. Thrown off its trajectory, the sun became erratic, and the planets went cold. The stars burned fiercely in the cold dark, but the aunts didn't notice that either. Another car went by. Her father muttered and made wet noises with his mouth. She imagined him saying, When I was broken, then they loved me. No wonder you hated them, said Laura softly. No wonder. Behind the reception desk, there were two radios playing different stations for each secretary. One played frenetic electronic songs, the other formula love songs, and both ran together in a gross hash of sorrow and desire. This happened every afternoon by around one. Faith, who worked behind the desk, said it was easy to separate them, to just concentrate on the one you wanted. But Laura always heard both of them. "'jabbering every time she walked by the desk. "'Martha Dillon?' "'She spoke the words to the waiting room. "'A shabby, middle-aged man eyed her querulously. "'A red-haired, middle-aged woman put down her magazine "'and approached Laura with a mild, obedient air. "'Martha was in for a physical, "'so Laura had to give her a preliminary "'before the doctor examined her. First, they stopped at the scale outside the office door.' Martha took off her loafers, her socks, and her sweater to shave off some extra ounces. A lot of women did that, and it always seemed stupid to Laura. 5'4", 126 pounds, she said loudly. Shit, muttered Martha. Look at the bright side, said Laura. You didn't gain since last time. Martha didn't reply, but Laura sensed an annoyed little buzz from her. She was still buzzing slightly as she sat in the office. Even though she was small and placid, It struck Laura that she gave off a little buzz all the time. She was 43 years old, but her face was unlined, and her eyes were wide and receptive like a much younger person's. Her hair was obviously dyed the way a teenager would do it. You could still tell she was middle-aged, though. She didn't smoke. She exercised three times a week. She drank twice a week, wine with dinner. She was single. Her aunt had diabetes, and her mother had ovarian cancer. She had never had an operation or been hospitalized. Her periods were regular. She had never had any sexual partners. Laura blinked. Never? No, said Martha. Never. She looked at Laura as if she were watching for a reaction and maybe holding back a smile. Her blood pressure was excellent. Her pulse rate was average. Laura handled her wrist and arm with unusual care. A 43-year-old virgin It was like looking at an ancient, sacred artifact, a primitive icon with its face rubbed off. It had no function or beauty, but it still felt powerful when you touched it. Laura pictured Martha walking around with a tiny red flame in the pit of her body, protecting it with her fat and muscle. Laura felt tense as she watched the doctor examine Martha, especially when he did the gynecological exam. She noticed that Martha gripped her paper gown in the fingers of one hand when the doctor sat between her legs. He had to tell her to open her legs wider three times. She lay with her head sharply turned so that she stared at a corner of the ceiling. There was a light sweat on her forehead. When she changed back into her clothes, though, she moved as if she were in a woman's locker room. She got up from the table and took off the paper gown before the doctor was even out of the room. Laura stared at her. Martha suddenly looked right at her and smiled as if she'd won something. She's probably really religious, or maybe she's crazy. That's what Beatrice, the secretary, thought. In this day and age, she was probably molested when she was little. I don't know, said Laura. I respected it. Beatrice shrugged. Well, you know, everybody has the right. She lowered her dark, heavy lashes and continued her graceful movements at her desk. Laura imagined her father looking at the middle-aged virgin and then looking away with an embarrassed smile on his face. He might think about protecting her, about waving at her from across the street, saying, Hi, how are you? Sending protection with his words. He could protect her and still keep walking, smiling to himself with embarrassed tenderness. He would have a feeling of honor and frailty, but there would be something repulsive in it too because she wasn't a pretty young girl. Laura remembered a minor incident in a novel she'd read by a French writer, in which a teenage boy knocked an old nun off a bridge. Her habit was heavy and so she drowned, and the writer wondered, with a stupid sort of meanness, Laura thought, whether the nun had felt shocked to have her vagina touched by cold water. She remembered a recent news story about a man who had kidnapped a little girl so that he could tie her to a tree and set a fire at the foot of the tree. Then he went to his house to watch her burn through binoculars until the police came. Instead of going back to the waiting room, she went to the public bathroom and leaned against the small windowsill with her head in her hands. She was 40. She tried to imagine what it would be like to be a virgin. She imagined walking through the supermarket encased in an invisible membrane that was fluid but also impenetrable, her eyes wide and staring like a doll's. Then she imagined her virginity like a strong muscle between her legs, making all her other muscles strong, making everything in her more alive, all the way up through her brains and into her bones. She lifted her head and looked out the small window. She saw green grass and the tops of trees, cylindrical apartment buildings, and traffic. She had not wanted her virginity. She'd had to lose it with three separate people. It had been stubborn and hard to break. She brushed the dust and particles from the windowsill off her elbows. I was a rebellious girl, she said, and I went in a stupid direction. She thought of the Narcotics Anonymous meetings she had attended some years ago. People had talked about the things that had happened to them, the things they had done on drugs. Nothing had been too degrading or too pathetic or too dull. Laura had talked about trying to lose her virginity. Her friend Danielle had told a story about how she'd let a disgusting, fat guy she hated try to shove a can of root beer up her vagina because he'd suggested they might be able to fill cans with heroin and smuggle them. Laura smiled a little. After the meeting, she'd asked Danielle, Who tried to stick it in, you or him? Oh, said Danielle, we both tried. They laughed. Such grotesque humility, she thought. Such strange comfort. She remembered the paper plates of cookies, the pot of coffee on the low table in the back of the room at N.A. She loved standing back there with Danielle, eating windmill cookies and smoking. Laura looked at herself in the bathroom mirror. A stupid girl, she said to her reflection. Well, she thought, but who could blame her? When Laura was still a teenager, her mother had asked what it had been like for her to lose her virginity. She wanted to know if the experience had been special. They had been watching TV together. It was late, and the living room was dark. Laura was startled by the question. Her mother looked straight ahead while she asked it, but Laura could see her expression was unhappy. Was it someone you loved, she asked? Yes, said Laura. Yes, it was. I'm glad, said her mother. She still looked straight ahead. I wanted you to have that. It seemed that she knew Laura was lying, and that the lie was okay with her. Virginity was supposed to be honorable, but who would want honor like that? She went back to the waiting room and got the grouchy, middle-aged man. He didn't bother to take off his shoes when she weighed him. He was there, he said, only because his wife had made him come. He had taken off work and shot the whole day. My wife loves going to the doctor, he said. She had all those mammograms and she lost her breast anyway, most of it. Well, but it's good to come in, said Laura. Even if it doesn't always work, you know that. Your wife's just caring about you. He gave a conciliatory little snort. With his shirt off, he was big and flabby, but he carried it as if he liked it. His blood pressure was much too high. As she worked, Laura let her touch linger on him longer than was necessary, because she wanted to soothe him. She felt him respond to her touch. The response was like an animal turning its head to look at her, then looking away again. She thought he liked it, though. When the man was gone, she asked Dr. Phillips if she could go outside on her break. He usually didn't like her to do that, because she was always a little late getting back when she went out. But he was trying to be extra nice since her father died. Okay, he said, but watch the time. He turned and strode down the hall, habitually bristling like a small dog with a dominant nature. Outside, the heat was horrible. She started sweating right away, probably ruining her uniform for the next day. Still, she was glad to be out of the building. The clinic was situated between a busy main street and a run-down slow street occupied by an old wig shop, a children's karate gym, and a large ill-kept park, where aging homeless men sat around. She decided to walk a few blocks down the park street. She liked the trees, and she was friendly with a few of the men who sometimes wished her good afternoon. She walked and an old song played in her head. It was the kind of old song that sounded innocent and dirty at the same time. The music was simple and shallow except for one deep spot where it was like somebody's pants were being pulled down. You got nothing to hide and everybody knows it's true. Too bad, little girl. It's all over for you. The singer laughed and the music laughed, too. Laughter spangled with pleasure and contempt. Laura had loved the song. She'd loved the thought of its being all over and everybody knowing. A lot of other people must have loved it, too. It had been a very popular song. She remembered walking down the hall in high school wearing tight clothes. Boys had laughed and grabbed their crotches. They all said she'd sucked their dicks, but she'd really only screwed one of them. It didn't matter. When her father found out, he yelled and hit her. Was it someone special? asked her mother was it someone you loved? She stopped at a curb for traffic. Her body was alive with feelings that were strong but that seemed broken or incomplete, and she felt too weak to hold them. A car pulled up beside her, throwing off motor heat. The car was full of loud teenage boys. The driver, a Hispanic boy of about 18, wanted to make a right turn, but he was blocked by a stalled car in front of him and cars next to him. He was banging his horn and yelling out the window. His anger was hot and all over the place. Laura stared at him. His delicate beauty was almost too bright-lit by his youth and maleness. He had so much light that it burned him up inside and made him dark. He yelled and pounded the horn, trying to spew it out, but still it surged through him. It was like he was at war, like he could kill and kill without any understanding in his mind or heart. In a real war, Laura thought, He would rush into danger before the other men and be called a hero. Her thought folded over unexpectedly, and she pictured him as a baby, with his small mouth on his mother's breast. She pictured his fierce nature deep inside him, like dark, beautiful seeds feeding off his mother's milk, off the feel of her hand on his skull. She thought of him now with a girl. He would kiss her too hard and be rough, wanting her to feel what he had inside him, wanting to show it to her. He turned in his seat to shout something to the other boys in the car, then turned forward again to put his head out the window to curse the other cars. He turned again and saw Laura staring at him. Their eyes met. She thought of her father showing his aunts the stars and all the planets. You are good, she thought. What you have is good. The boy dropped his eyes in confusion. There was a yell from the back seat. The stalled car leapt forward. The boy snapped around, hit the gas, and was off. Laura crossed the street. She thought, I told him he was good. I told him with my eyes and he heard me. She flinched under a second of embarrassment to think that she could give that guy anything he might want. But then she thought of the middle-aged virgin jumping off the examining table and smiling as if she'd won something, and she felt okay again. She walked up the block sweating and grateful without knowing why. Again, she pictured the middle-aged virgin, this time at home at night, doing her meticulous toilet, rubbing her feet with softening cream. She pictured herself at home, curled on the couch, watching TV and eating ice cream out of the carton. She pictured the men in her dream, fighting. She pictured herself kneeling beside the handsome man. She would pass her hand over his broken skull and make an impenetrable membrane grow over his exposed brain. The membrane would be transparent, you would be able to see his brain glowing inside it like magic stones, but you could never cut it or harm it. She pictured her father, young and strong, smiling at her, the planets all around him. Deep in the park she saw the homeless men moving about, their figures nearly obscured by overgrown grass and trees. For a moment she strained to see them more clearly, then gave up. It was time to go back. She was late.
0: That was Ben Marcus, Reading a Dream of Men by Mary Gateskill. The story appeared in The New Yorker in November of 1998 and was included in Gateskill's collection, Don't Cry, which was published by Pantheon in 2009. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ben, we have this, this title dream about men fighting, and one man tries to cut off the other man's head, and Laura, our yeah. narrator, Laura, runs in and basically disembowels him yeah um, do you think there's any clear meaning to that dream or a lot of unclear meanings or
1: well all throughout the story it would seem that these kind of random thoughts occur to her or she has dreams um, the 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 men are fighting and then we, we return to that there there's a moment when uh, Laura remembers uh, a scene from a novel in which a, a nun is pushed off a bridge and lands in the cold water. And right after that, there's this seemingly totally random memory, uh, I guess, of a news story that Laura has heard of where a man is tied a girl up uh, to a tree and set her on fire. So what's interesting is all of this violence and horrible stuff is happening in this kind of unreal space. There's, There's so much grotesquerie in this story. But on the surface, it's simply a story of a of a woman going to work.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: I I I, uh, I don't know that the dream has any clear meaning. I think if we got all lit critical, you know, she she has this encounter with a middle aged woman, right, who says that she's uh, never slept with anybody, and Laura is kind of fascinated and horrified, um, and t- tries to think about virginity as a sort of physical state and she imagines a kind of membrane that protects her um, from everything. And then later when she's thinking about this dream again, she wants to go save the tall, handsome man who's been beaten up by the short fat man. And she (laughs) wants to put a membrane around his head. And it's this gorgeous image of protecting him and you could see his brain and he could never be hurt. So I think this is deliberately elusive stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it probably wouldn't be so fascinating if it had a really, like, clear psychoanalytical chartitude. Yeah, yeah. Um, And and so it seems enigmatic, but not so weird that you can't kind of get a lot of feeling out of it.
0: It's interesting what she does with that kind of doubling up of imagery, how you have the the membrane that— Represents virginity. You have this membrane that represents protecting this wounded man. Yeah. You also have the the woman's virginity described as this little red flame she's carrying around, and then you have this little girl being burned. Yeah. You know by flames. That's right. And this kind of repeated um, sense of certain images that crop up in quite different contexts.
1: Yeah. It seems like the story is aware of its own materials, and there's mm-hmm. sort of this limited supply. There's there's also when she First sees her father when he's hooked up to some machines, and there's a description of him as if he's kind of he has something live and he's trying to hold it mm-hmm. and uh then later on in the story, that very similar thing is is said connected to her where she's
0: when she has a this sort of very strong body with broken feelings inside yeah. it, yeah. yeah,
1: it seems that she she's she is uh I mean, I guess we could we could think that this is all very naturalistic, and that this mm-hmm. is all a character's kind of metaphors and ways of thinking, and she's going to very understandably apply this to multiple things, and that way you don't feel that it's the author doing this; mm-hmm. you feel this is a it's like a symptom of her way of thinking, right? And so she's shifting it.
0: What's interesting when she when she thinks about the dream, and she she describes the dream, and then she instantly says, "Well, my father is also a very small, flabby man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so she goes right into the father and sort of, uh, you know, making him parallel to the the aggressor, whom she's just slashed open yeah. with a knife."
1: Yeah. I mean, also right when the dream end ends, which is just this horrifying kind of dismemberment, it's like she lit a cigarette and opened the car door. Yeah. This, this incredible <laughs> transition to this placid, almost banal, real space. Right. And right. she does that a lot. Yeah. Just, it's so unsettling. It's, it, I think it's one interesting thing about that is she never seems to kind of reflect in a way maybe we might be used to, where we're getting more moral guidance to where the writer or narrator is going to say yeah that was terrible yeah so there's no acknowledgement of it and we're left alone with it
0: yeah i mean she expresses great curiosity about things yeah but not judgment about them
1: yeah she doesn't analyze any of it and so it stays isolated but yeah that that scene you're talking about the father is she she has these random memories of the father right and that first one i think is he's He's kind of doing his boxing moves and saying, mm-hmm. you know, he's still got the moves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a strange linkage to these two violent men.
0: And what What do you think is is at the heart of her relationship with her father? I mean, she has these...
1: Well, there's a great tell. I mean, first of all, it's there's so much we don't know. Mm-hmm. There's clearly some tension. We never actually even see the father die. We know that he has died. There's very selective... Uh, you know, presentation of that. But when she's um, up late at night with her sister the night before her father dies, they're having this conversation and the sister's talking about her son who's struggling. And then she ventures this kind of vision, memory, and her sister... And and it's it's explicit, and it seems sort of horrifying, and it seems that the father's a kind of culprit in this image, although it barely gets off the ground, and the sister instantly stops her as if this is kind of familiar.
0: Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. this image of of her father connected to slashing vaginas with a knife yeah yeah. or laura saying this
1: stuff and and so it it does a a ton of work right Mm -hmm. like you don't get any detail but either laura has talked about this a lot or like some of it's founded some of it's unfounded annalee has had to fend it off laura knows she shouldn't bring it up too so a whole history is suggested around it
0: Right. But you don't and you don't know what that history is. I mean you know that the father made this comment about her tight pants, yeah. which was yeah. explicit and yeah. memorable because inappropriate, you yeah. know, or at least embarrassing to her. Yeah. You know that he freaks out when he finds out she's you know that's lost right. her virginity
1: that's right I mean in a funny um, way well, at least one of those things is just a kind of generic parental thing yeah and then the comment about her pants it's it's it, it it crosses this kind of line right um, and and then when what he says about it actually I find very unsettling he says nobody wants to see that not you know don't don't wear that that's <laughs> you know it's a bad idea to go out right. in the world but to yeah. say nobody wants to see that is as if well if there was something someone wanted to see you could do that like it <laughs> it it seems so so kind of cold and lecherous
0: yeah yeah i mean and then you have this it, it's it's all so contradictory because you have this idea of him you know this vision of him being behind this kind of slashing of vaginas this very violent violent image towards women and then you have her saying well if he had met this this Old, you know, forty-three-year-old virgin, he would have been smugly protective of her. Yeah, um, he would have waved at her from across know, the street the and protected pro- she's her. She's projecting this wave, him into you know? this
1: scenario that <laughs> um, could never happen. And, I mean, it's she's reckoning with who yeah. he is, and but you know what I think is really brilliant in the story, which I, I found so stirring, was when she then, re- you know, she goes, she can't sleep, and she goes into his room where he is really on his deathbed at that point and has this memory of him growing up. um, And he's grown up with these two aunts. And the kind of sort of anecdote she gives is very strange. Mm -hmm. And I think when I first read it, I thought he really was kind of building a model of the universe. And he wanted to show the aunts this thing he built. But it's actually the way his interior consciousness is constructed.
0: He sort of presented his own vision of the world and they shoot it down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really intense. I mean, it's, 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 uh, so it's, it shows that I think as a main character, she, she has this love and generosity towards him. Like she's looking to find a way to kind of allow for him and understand him. And she's, you know, she says, well, you know, I understand I would have hated them too. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear that anything is exonerated. It's more that she actually has to live with the contradiction of him.
0: She has, you know, for someone who who has these violent thoughts of men who's who's single, she has a very surprising tenderness yeah. towards all the men in the story. In a way, I she mean, sees the the boy at the at the stoplight, the boy in the car who's you know, and she projects. A, on his horn yeah,
1: and, and, she sees this angry boy, and suddenly she's saying he would be great in a war, he would be a hero. I yeah, mean, she has this incredible yeah. way of projecting. She art. tells him he's good, yeah. and she sort yeah.
0: of soothes him. <laughs> the same thing with the the cranky man in the doctor's office as she sort of says she touches him in a way yeah. that he's not going to notice but it'll be soothing to him it'll you know yeah. calm his kind of jangled nerves about this and she or does the same thing with the father where she touches she him touches lightly him with him and, her and fingertips he says,
1: and that feels good honey and he's never called her that before yeah, yeah yeah so just
0: this this way she has of i suppose it's maternal you know maybe it goes yeah. back to that well, moment where the doctor tells her there's ways of loving without having children
1: um, yeah, that's all, That's also a, a funny encounter. Yeah. <laughs>
0: There's so much going on in here. Uh, when she published the story in The New Yorker, it was called A Dream of Men. And then when she published it in her collection, Don't Cry, she changed the title to An Old Virgin. Hmm. Um, and I asked Mary about that. And, and she said, well, she, she came to think the first title was a bit misleading because it made it sound as though somehow sort of a sensual or erotic story, you ah, know, dreaming of men.
1: Yeah. It's it's misleading in a nice way, though. It sort of has an irony to it when you return to it.
0: Yeah. Right, because... Yeah. <laughs> <it's>,
1: uh, <laughs> and there's all kinds of dreams. And she also
0: said, you know, what's interesting, and, and I stopped to think about it, is that, you know, these two men in the dream, they're in Laura's mind. I yeah. mean, in a way, they're parts of her. That's right. They're not actual men. That's right. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're part of this universe of laura's vision of humanity male and female
1: and you know we know that when she was a teenager she was promiscuous and she has these comments about herself she's like i I went in a stupid direction she's she's sort of self-loathing but not in a very uh kind of uh, abundant way you get these little lines and what what it took me a little while to notice and now i'm sort of struck by is that we know nothing about her home life i mean she, we really don't know if she's has anybody else. Right. Um, if she's completely alone, she doesn't seem.
0: We know she has a striped mug. Yeah, that's right. It's more <laughs> like a bowl. It's yeah. maybe
1: an early appearance of the, the bowl mug <laughs>
0: <laughs> back in nineteen ninety eight. But we also have, you know, you open with that moment of her mut- muttering ugly uh, cunt to herself, and you yeah. don't, you don't know even if she's talking to herself, calling herself names. It, it seems you know she has that comment about sort of going inward after her father dies. You wonder if she's sort of internalized his voice, if this was something he might have said.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and and it turns into women are ugly, and then she thinks of some women who she aren't. Says, well, they're not ugly. Yeah, yeah and, like and and, and she punched someone yeah. for saying right. it. Right, and at the end of that paragraph, she she sort of is saying she didn't she doesn't mean the ugly cunt line. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And so it sort of is released into the story and then taken back, but of course you're you're affected by it, and that's that's yeah. how we start.
0: Yeah. Though I noticed when when she published the story in the book, uh, Laura mutters that again later in the story. She does. It's a different mm. a different version. A callback. But, um, so it's something. It's a refrain that's going through her head, and you don't quite know. I mean, also you have this backdrop of Monica Lewinsky. Amazing. Um, which um, I know is kind is of timely. wonderful to read now. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it actually sounds sort of quaint. It does, doesn't it? You know, it? people and saying, criticizing Monica Lewinsky because she's a porker. You know, it's, it's not... And, all uh,
1: kind of, and, and th- there too, though, she has a conversation with herself about that, yeah. right? And there's this sort of, um, this dialogue where she tries to take both sides and she sort mm, of like says... He, maybe well, he know, wants to
0: be with normal right, people. Why doesn't you know? it matter?
1: Why does yeah. it matter at
0: all? It's funny, particularly now, to, to I know. think about whether whether a presidential candidate's sexuality matters. Um Scandal, <laughs> sexual Scandals behavior. have really escalated. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we need to de-escalate our scandals. We're all exactly. so numb now.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, I thought it was interesting to look at uh, reviews of the book when the story came out with the title An Old Virgin because I noticed they all focus on the virgin character.
1: Yeah, sure. I imagine so.
0: And when I read it, I focused on the sort of visions of men because yeah. I was reading it with this, this title. So... Uh, It just shows how suggestive a title can be. (laughs) It is really funny, isn't
1: it? Yeah, right. Because with this title, the Virgin character is she's she's enigmatic and really important and provocative, but it doesn't slightly unpleasant. Yeah, that's right. What I notice is every time Laura is kind of trying, she she, she's sort of fascinated and horrified by everyone she considers. It it seems like she has these little these little encounters. I don't know she sees some people waiting for a the bus mm-hmm, right before she's mm-hmm. going to work and and they look like uh what do they look like I feel like everyone looks like animals to a certain degree
0: Oh yeah um, well there's the woman who who's approving uh, they're like when she's a band of ragged cats Yeah and like then she yeah, stops for the squirrel squirrel on
1: the... her feet look like hooves Yeah <laughs> um there's the doctor who's who's like a a kind of alpha dog, but a small mm-hmm. alpha <laughs> dog. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, maybe that's too kind of focusing on this symbolism. But that the man who she's she's soothing because he has high blood pressure, and she feels he's not getting touched enough.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, he gives her a look the way an animal might look yeah. at someone touching mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. so, it's it. I feel like in a lot of Mary Gateskill's work, there is that f- slight feeling of estrangement around other characters, or and and maybe by. Describing them in animal terms a little bit, it sort of suggests mm-hmm. the remove that people are from her, mm-hmm. they're at from her.
0: Well, there's also how she thinks about uh, people as children. You know, she sees the the sort of aggressive guy in the car Yeah, his horn and she pictures him nursing as yeah. a baby. And, well, you know, he was beautiful at that point. He's still beautiful and that's still there. And she's yeah. thinking of her father as this little boy who was right. crushed by... Misunderstanding, you know, uninterested yeah. guardians, um, and even even thinking about her nephew, you know, Annalise's son, who's right, just too much sadder and angrier than a child his yes. age should be, and she's 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 like a, a sort of sponge for pain around her. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, she she seems to unleash her imagination every time she has a really yeah. almost banal encounter.
0: Yeah, you think how can you get through the day? <laughs> yeah, I know. Having these feelings.
1: But all the dramatic stuff is interior. Yeah. Nothing happens in the story at all. She she goes to work.
0: She goes to work. Yeah. <laughs> it's like
1: <laughs> how do you write a plot? Well, she
0: goes out for a break. You put
1: your character in a car <laughs> and send her to work and you're done.
0: Yeah. But yeah. no,
1: it's her I think it's her really brilliant ability to weave between that exterior reality and the interior one and not, I don't know, it never really, you never think, oh, here's a flashback. Oh, no. No. <laughs> I'm trapped in a flashback. What will I do? No. It feels very seamless and it feels very present and very immediate.
0: Yeah. There's, I mean, and and also just this fact that her father has obviously recently died because yeah. people are being um, right, her kind to her because of letting that. Letting her go on a break. And how unprocessed the, the death still is, that it keeps coming up. And in a way, it it comes up, um, in the beginning, she links the father to the aggressive guy in the dream. Yeah. And at the end, she links him to, you know, this sort of wounded, wounded, sort of more appealing man in the dream, because she's thinking of him as having been having had his brain, in a sense, stomped on or, right. you know, broken.
1: And, and, and the mother is sort of interesting in that, you know, right away yeah. in the story we get this line that I just love. I've just been saying it out loud to myself. that She had a small deer bald spot on her head. Yes. <laughs> <And> like. <laughs> Like without the word dear, that is just a kind of mean thing to yeah. lay on a character. Yeah. But to call no, it a dear. It was dear. <laughs> and then, of course, the really heart-wrenching scene when the mother just would like to know that when Laura lost her virginity, it mattered. It was to someone right. she loved. And Laura lies and the mother knows it. But just yeah. that's all she wants to hear. And you just you feel that what Laura's doing is just kind of punishing herself with all these memories in one mm-hmm. way or another. Or okay. she's, she's trying to... Live with all of this un- unpleasantness that keeps coming back.
0: Right, and there's obviously a lot about her we don't know. I mean, she says her virginity was so stubborn she had to lose it to three separate people. Know. You know, <laughs> but then you know she meets her best friend in, in Narcotics Anonymous, so she's gone through That's something. Right. Yeah, um, and it's
1: it's great that there isn't a t- just a ton of leaden. I guess exposition hanging mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. all down. You it's can just really all suggested. Yeah, and you can figure it all out. Yeah. yeah, the narcotics anonymous thing is just dropped in there very seamlessly and subtly yeah, it's and then just it's then sort it's, then of it's how over. she met this woman yeah. and But it, it, that vacuum and that mystery around her present I think is a real force in the story. Mm-hmm. Just how mysterious she is now.
0: Mm-hmm. And also the, the 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 other mystery is this this old virgin who's like a kind of icon that's yeah, still, it's lost its beauty, but it has some sort of totemic power. It seems like she
1: wants to kind of assign something sort of counterintuitive or dissonant. So, like the 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 woman who's a virgin is is kind of defiant and pleased with herself when she's getting dressed. Mm-hmm. The man, I guess, is very overweight and flabby when he's undressed. But she says that he 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 walks around like he likes it, mm-hmm. and she she's she's finding these kind of uncomfortable portrayals and yeah. Um, describing this defiance but it's really in her mind it's not clear that that's yeah. really happening
0: we never get a physical description of her do we
1: no i don't think we do we, her car is a mess she has <laughs> cassette tapes in her car it reminded me of high school i was like exactly. oh right <laughs> I
0: had a lot of, like, the vibe. another way that the, you know yeah. a story from 1998 can seem quaint now i know um, i know
1: but but in a lot of, i mean in, in in every other way it's a. It, it fe- I don't know. It still feels very contemporary.
0: It feels, it feels prescient in a way, and, yeah. and obviously this discussion of uh, women's bodies, how they're perceived by men, how they're self-perceived, yeah. and, and Laura's sort of self self insulting in yeah. any case, her own um, attempt
1: to reckon with all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feels very,
0: very, very, of the very
1: I know it does. There was this. Um, description of the office with the two secretaries who each have their own, have their radio, own station radio stations, on. On. <laughs> and They but, can
0: listen to their own one and oh, she can't.
1: But there's this line and I guess all this is is saying this is just a terrific line and, and in a funny way you could almost use it as a description of a of a Mary Gates' call story it's uh, both ran together in a gross hash of sorrow and desire it's just these, it's just like the the pretty thing and then the disturbing thing and, and they're both happening yeah and yeah. the secretary say oh it's no problem i can just tune one out and listen to the other and of course Laura can't she and, can't uh,
0: tune anything out yeah. she's she's so heightened in yeah. her perceptions of everything well thank you Ben You're welcome Mary Gatesgill is the author of six books of fiction, including the story collections Because They Wanted To and Don't Cry, and the novel The Mare*, which was published in 2015. Ben Marcus's books include Leaving the Sea, The Flame Alphabet, and Notable American Women. He edited the anthology New American Stories, which was published by Vintage last year. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. You can also hear readings of New Yorker fiction on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treesman. Thanks for listening.